Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords, and this is the 502nd show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Dr. Richard Overy, Honorary Professor of History at Exeter University, and we're going to be talking about his book, Blood and Ruin, The Last Imperial War, 1911 to 45. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. All right, so to begin, welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, we're very excited. Uh, we call this first segment Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is to give our listeners just a little bit of background on today's subject. So let's start off way back at the beginning. Can you give us just some basic information about the events leading up to World War One? Uh, and, and what's going on so that we have some idea of, of where we're going to try to go. Okay, well, my book is about the Second World War, but I've rooted it really in the late 19th century. And, and the reason I've done that uh, is because I, I, I link up what happened in the 1930s and the Second World War with the great wave of empire building, violent empire building in the late 19th century. And in the decades leading up to 1914 and the outbreak of war, um, the major empires, Britain and France in particular, but it was also true of the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany and so on, uh, they spread out into all the areas of the world that hadn't yet been conquered or explored to build very large empires to underpin their nation, their sense of nationhood. And that's really what I've started with, you know, that you don't understand the Second World War unless you root it in that background. This was a world of empires. It was a world of territorial empires in which the European states thought they could dominate uh, other peoples. Uh, and it's that motif that seems to me to be the most important one. 1914, when the war comes, is a, you know, essentially a war of empires. You know, every state that takes part, apart from the United States, is an empire. Okay, so talk to our, us a, a little bit about sort of the balances of powers of these empires and, and how the world has kind of been split up and i think for again for most of us at least here in the states you know our our understanding of world war one is kind of you know we get a brief description of trench warfare um in in europe itself and nothing is talked about anything else that's going on on, on a larger scale so you can kind of help us understand how how all of this is playing out in in the wider world yeah i mean the first world war like the Second World War, is, is a global war, and I think we often forget that. Um, you know, fighting is going on in the Pacific, in Africa, in the Middle East, and so on, uh, across almost all the oceans. Um, and the Western Front is, you know, is one front, uh, but it's only one front. Uh, for Britain and France, who are the major imperial powers, their real interest is in getting their empires to help in the war, uh, but also in protecting their empires and defending their empires, uh, if possible, even enlarging them. Um, now, Germany uh, is an imperial power as well, but it's it's pretty much um, locked in by French and British sea power. Uh, and so the Germans begin to think about, let's build an empire in the East. Uh, towards the end of the First World War, they, they sign a treaty with the infant Soviet Union in which they do carve out a huge you know, territorial empire in the East, Ukraine and so on. They lose it, of course, because they lose the war. Um, but, but the aftermath, I think, is to leave in everybody's 
mind the idea that empire is what matters. You know, the, the British Empire and the French Empire won because they had the economic resources, the global uh, assistance and so on of the empires. And as a result, empire must be the way to define yourself as a successful great power. So the First World War is bound up with this issue of empire. At the end of the war, the Russian Empire, the Austrian Empire, the German Empire, the Turkish Empire all collapse. And what's left, of course, are the British and French empires, you know, the biggest empires in the world, covering more than a third of the globe. Uh, and it's that which really invites the envy of other states. And in the 1920s and 1930s, we see that being played out. Okay, I, I want to sort of take one last moment and focus on those non-European folks, the, the colonial um, individuals who are under the control of these great empires. How do they react, respond to both the, the war that, that they get sort of included in, um, in the European conflict that they're sort of almost pulled into as as uh, proxies or whatever, mm-hmm. and and then the 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 aftermath of the end of of World War One, you know, where does that leave all of these these um, populations, non European populations, and and how do they kind of feel about all of that? Because it feels to me like that's going to play a part in some of what takes place in World War Two. Mm. Oh, it does take place in World War Two as well, because what they do is they see the war as a war against you know the autocratic powers, Germany and Austria and so on, and uh, and there's a lot of rhetoric, uh, particularly when the United States joins the war, a lot of rhetoric about democracy and democratizing the world and so on and so on. So many of the colonial areas, whether it's India, whether it's Korea, or whether it's the Middle East, they think, ah, oh, good. Here's our opportunity now to become independent nation states as well. And they, they petition the Allies in 1919 in Paris where they're drawing up the Versailles Treaty. And they petition them saying, you know, this is the time you should give us independence or autonomy and so on. But, but all those demands are rejected. In the end, despite Woodrow Wilson and his talk of uh, self-determination and so on, he's really thinking about Europe. He's not thinking about the wider world. Um, and so the, the, the problem of empire lingers on into the 1920s and 30s. There are a great many subject peoples who want to be free, if they can be. But there are also other powers, like Germany, like Japan, like Italy, the three axis powers later on in the Second World War, who think to themselves, well, very good. Britain and France now have an even bigger empire than they had before. Uh, we need an empire, too. If, if we don't have an empire, we're not going to be great powers like them. So the, the theme of empire runs right through from the 1880s, 90s, right through the First World War on into the interwar years. All right. Well, we obviously have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Check out the new Mississippi Valley Blues Society website at mvbs.org. They have recovered and digitized tons of content from past Blues Fests, interviews and workshops, and introduced vault sessions, great acts from popular blues artists. Their new web store has all of the MVBS gear you could ever want, plus exclusive signed posters from past Blues Fests. With the new blues calendar, mvbs.org has all of the latest on local blues happenings.
Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the second segment of the show, referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Richard Overy, Honorary Professor of History at Exeter University, and we're talking about his book, Blood and Ruin, The Last Imperial War, 1911 to 1945. Our history buffs for today's show are Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thank you, Jay. Richard, uh, remarkable book, uh, all nearly a thousand pages of it. I really Thank enjoyed you. reading through it, uh, uh, and I wish I had... Uh, known what you wrote now when I taught uh, world history back a thousand years ago. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the the one thing that struck me is, particularly in your book, you do in fact capture that World War II was a total war, absolutely total war. What part of civilization was not touched by the uh, World War II? Well, it's total, of course, yes, in, in uh, global terms, too, geographical terms. Uh, if you want an area that's not much touched, um, parts of Africa and, of course, much of Latin America. Um, but even, even you know, in Latin America, you know, most states, like Argentina, finally signed up to join the Allied war effort. Um, but it's total, of course, in another sense, that, that the big powers that take part, you know, they persuaded themselves after the First World War but if there's ever going to be a big war again between the powers, the only way you're going to win it is by mobilizing your resources as fully as possible. Your, your entire community, economically, socially, psychologically committed to war. Um, and it's an extraordinary thing now when we look back at it and think about it. But, you know, in every country, the population is more or less accepted that that was the reality, the prevailing reality. If you wanted to win a war, that's what you had to do. Okay. Brett? You talk about these wars as imperial wars, and I don't think that uh, most people have a very good grasp on how the imperial dynamic worked militarily. So we, we think of uh, the British efforts, but we don't think of the people from the Indian subcontinent who Britain used to fill gaps in the front line. Can you talk about how imperial holdings were used by the major powers uh, to shore up their war efforts? Well, I mean, they're used by all the powers. Um, uh, you know, for Britain, it's very important that the dominions, um, the settler dominions, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, that they all take part. And they contribute a huge amount. I mean, for much of the war, the British war effort is being fought abroad, not by British soldiers, but by soldiers from the empire, including India. Um, and so, and you know, something I think people often lose sight of, that, you know, the, the big war in North Africa, Alamey and all this, you know, most of the troops uh, under British command are not British. Um, but it's also true in another sense that the Germans and the Japanese and the Italians, they build their own territorial empires in the 1930s and early 1940s. And one of the things they want to do, one of the reasons for having it, or wanting it, is they want to exploit the resources and manpower of these areas. And they do it too, and for the Germans, you know, it's, it's essential. The Germans, in occupied Europe, German-occupied Europe, there are about 20 million Europeans working for the German war effort. Um, and we've lost sight entirely, I think, of the extent to which 
This is an imperial war. Empires are fighting each other, and they draw on the resources of other areas. And they couldn't fight the war the way they did unless they were able to do that. Okay. It's a very interesting, to me at least, the the narrative that gets talked about in terms of the imperial aspect of World War II is usually just the alliance system. And it's always framed in terms of competing interests and alliances being made, alliances of convenience being made, and so forth and so on. Um, so I'm I'm interested in in that sense. Are there are there true um, economic or philosophical um, ideas that unite the the various sides, uh, the Allies and the Axis? Um, and and trickle down, so to speak, into the the populations of the countries that they're that they're controlling, mm-hmm. or or is there a sense of this is really a you know the the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and these relationships are only going to last as long as I need them, and then hopefully I'm going to drop back to some status quo. Well, I mean, we know that's true of the alliance between Britain, the United States, and the Soviet Union. Um, it's a marriage of convenience. Um, very convenient. In fact, the Soviet Union bears the bulk of the German uh, military forces and um, contributes a huge amount to the to the final victory. Um, but, I mean, it's an interesting point you've made there. I mean, I think that, that you know, that they have to find some way of binding themselves together and so they do. A great deal of propaganda effort goes into making the Grand Alliance look as if it is really an alliance. Um, but they do have very different interests. Really, the Americans are quite keen on on overturning the whole idea of empire, British as well. Uh, the Russians are desperate to defend themselves against what they see as a, you know, capitalist imperialism from Germany. Um, and Britain is determined to defeat Hitler, but at the same time to preserve her empire. Um, so there are lots of different tensions going on with the alliance, and, and the more we, more historians look at it, the more fragile it seems. But it keeps going only for the one critical reason, is that they want to end the territorial imperial ambitions of Germany, Japan, and Italy. That's really what unites them. The idea that the empires that have been constructed in the 1930s violently by these three Axis states have got to be overturned. And on the Axis side, the one thing that keeps people going and keeps the regimes going is that they're not going to give them up. Otherwise, they could reach an agreement, I suppose. But the Germans are not going to give up what they've conquered. The Japanese are not going to give up their new empire in China and the Pacific. And the Italians don't want to give up their empire in the Mediterranean and Africa. Um, and so what unites both sides, really, is, is on, you know, on the one side, they want to eliminate these territorial empires. And on the other, they want to defend them. Uh, and that becomes such an embedded idea that they go on fighting, the Axis go on fighting right to the end, even when it doesn't make any sense to carry on. Okay, Rick. Richard, uh, in the opening uh, segment, you, you mentioned that uh, Germany, Italy, and Japan uh, want to be a great empire like the French and the English. Uh, and I know in your book you talked about uh, the concept needing more space, uh, more space, ergo mm-hmm. more land. And I'm curious, uh, and I didn't, I, maybe I sped read the section in your book, but what's the me- mental frame uh, of reference for the leaders in Germany, Italy, and Japan that 
they, you know, why do they want to be a great empire? What's what's the motive other than space? Well, two things. First of all, they say they think that that's what defines a great power, um, and a great power, you know, the, the, the people in in a great power, uh, you know, have have in a sense the right to rule other people. But the more serious thing for all three states, of course, was simply the collapse of the world economy in 1929, which left them very fragile and isolated in the 1930s. And what they want to do with their new territorial empires is to set up a system, a world system of economic blocks. So there'll be a sterling area, a dollar area, and so on. But then there'll be the mark area uh, across Europe and Eurasia. And the Japanese set up the yen area in China and uh, Southeast Asia and so on. And the object being that they will, you know, they will build, you know, protected economic zones, which they dominate. And the, so they, they, all three states think that's the way the world is going to go. They think that the liberal trading economy and investing economy of before 1914, which briefly revived in the 1920s, they think that's over. They're wrong, of course, because it emerges in 1945 again, and all three states, Japan, Germany, and Italy, benefited a lot from it. Um, but in the 1930s, they get locked into this idea that what you need is an economic zone, an imperial economic zone that you dominate yourself. Okay, Brett. So can you talk to us a little bit about how territories are divvied up at Versailles uh, influences the alignment uh, of the various powers in World War II, because many people forget that um, Japan absolutely humiliates Russia um, militarily and then gets left out in the cold when it comes time to divvy things up. Yeah, no, no, I mean, you're quite right. I mean, I talk about this in the book, and, uh, you know, Versailles is, from that point of view, quite an important turning point, because the Germans are stripped of their colonies, and they're told that they're not a colonizing people, and not, they're not worthy to be colonizers. The Italians were promised all kinds of uh, territory in the Middle East and so on, that they say, joined the war effort. They get almost nothing. Um, and the Japanese similarly expanded to China during the course of the war, expect you know that expansion to be respected but the americans would just say no you've got to give these things back uh, not only that but the japanese wanted a clause inserted into the covenant of these nations which would uh, you know, eliminate racial prejudice if you like and the western powers wouldn't accept that either so all three states uh, feel really humiliated by what happens in at versailles resentful and it's quite interesting, I think, because I think in the 20s and 30s, you could characterize the rise of extreme nationalism as a, as a politics of resentment. I think resentment is a very, it's a very dangerous emotion, and I think it's one which drove uh, the German right wing and the Italian right wing and the Japanese militias. Resentment at the way they'd been treated, and were still being treated, as they saw it, by the Western powers. So 1919 is from the point of view of my argument, I think, a very important thing. But the point of view is Germany, Italy, and Japan, the future Axis powers, you know, they're not aligned together. They don't have an alliance. They're not aligned together. But it's the point of which they all begin to look at the world in resentful terms. You know, why should the British and the French be so powerful? But the Japanese Foreign Office official says to a British Foreign Office official, he says, look, why do you think it's all right for you to dominate India, but it's not all right for us to dominate China? Um, 
to which, you know, in some in some sense, it's quite difficult to give an answer. If I can follow up on that, so how do the regimes, as they come to power, Hitler in Germany, Mussolini um, in Italy, and so forth, how do these regimes fan those those feelings of resentment in the rank and file in their in their populations in order to both consolidate their own power and then justify what is ultimately going to be uh, several acts of provocation and expansion um how do i in other words how do i take that that feeling and turn it into something that i can use to accomplish my goals Mm. Well, I mean, of course, the answer is that there are many people in all three states who didn't really identify with it and didn't want to fight the war. Um, I mean, they do it by a combination of propaganda. They, they build a discourse uh, of resentment against Versailles, for example, or in the Italian case, a sense that they've been cheated by the West all the time, you know, and they needed to have an empire. Well, in the case of Japan, the, basically it's the rise of Asia, you know, the West and America, um, uh, 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 keeping Asia penned in um, and a great many people in Japan kind of accept that um, and go along with the war effort because they see this as a war effort to assert Japan's Asianness uh, against the, the values of the West and the same in Germany too you know, a lot of, of Germans are not actually necessarily Nazis but they're certainly nationalists and they feel they're resentful at the Versailles resentful that they're not allowed to be an empire when they think they should be one um, and the same sort of thing in Italy a great deal of propaganda in the 30s about Italy, the great imperial power the great imperial future um, and quite a lot of people buy into that enough people buy into it for there to be no real political problem if there is opposition, of course, in all three states, it's stamped on. In Germany and by terror, in Italy by terror. In Japan, the thought police are there everywhere, making sure that people toe the line. Uh, so even if you didn't agree, you have to be seen to be agreeing, otherwise you take the consequences. Okay. Rick, I think this will be the, the last uh, dis, uh, history buff um, question. I'll keep it down to 26 minutes. Okay, okay good plan. <laughs> Richard, uh, uh, your uh, writing, in particular the chapter on uh, the Holocaust and uh, uh, the, the treatment of not only the Jews but also other minorities, uh, it, is, it is remarkable that we point a finger at Germany as the as the the bogey boogeyman on on uh, persecuting the Jews, mm. but uh, in your book you point out that uh, they were not the only ones who were persecuting uh, the Jews and the Gypsies and uh, the mentally ill, whatever. Uh, most of Eastern Europe, um, most of Europe, mm. including France, was doing this. Uh, mm. Is that uh, am I making too much of that point? No, no. I mean, I think there's a point that needs to be made more of, actually, that, that in the end, the Holocaust is a European-wide phenomenon. Of course, you know, most of the countries involved don't imagine that all Jews are going to be exterminated, you know, either shot in the back of the head or put in the, you know, in the, in the, um, um, in the gas ovens. But, um, but they comply. They like to get the idea of getting rid of their Jews. Um, in some cases in Romania, for example, they actually kill many of them themselves and so on. 
But the Germans could not really have achieved what they achieved in the genocide of the Jews if they hadn't had the cooperation of, uh, of a great many Europeans. Um, and I think that's a point that we need to, to remember, that racism is not just confined to the Germans. But in the context of the 1930s and 1940s, it can be seen widely in, in Europe. It's a depressing thought, but, um, but that's the reality. All right. Well, it is customary that we give our guests the last word on the show. So, Richard, why do you think knowing about the events of the last Imperial War is relevant in today's world? Well, if you'd asked me that, I think, at the beginning of the year, I wouldn't have been quite so certain about my answer. The war in Ukraine, of course, is just a reminder um, that, you know, issues never go away. Ukraine's had a difficult time. It's been raped through the end of the First World War, raped through twice during the Second World War, and now it's suffering again, uh, this time at the hand of, uh, of Russia. Um, uh, there are things still to learn about the, the Second World War, but I suppose I had always thought that, that we put that behind us, uh, and that writing a book about the Second World War is a book, it's a warning, but not something that would actually now uh, be increasingly pertinent. You know? Um, I wish in a way that Putin had read Button Greens. I mean, he might have hesitated before starting off across Ukraine. All right. Well, when we come back, we're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 502nd show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme and was written and performed by Mark Zapp Zappital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Richard Overy, Honorary Professor of History at Exeter University, who talked with us about his book, Blood and Ruin, The Last Imperial War, 1911 to 1945. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotza Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.